Well, greetings, church. Greetings, everyone. It is so good to be with you today on this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all those uh, dads in our midst, to all those father figures in our midst. We celebrate you today. Uh, My name is Abby Odio. I'm a pastor here and um, just really grateful to be able to worship with you. We gather today, albeit uh, electronically once again, uh, in the midst of this really unique time in our world. And particularly in our nation, we have uh, this virus that continues to linger. We are living amidst sort of these deep political fractures. Um, We see once again, even this week, the evils of racism are acutely and profoundly real in our world. Now, I name all of that context as we get started, because as we continue in our journey today through the book of Acts, the scripture that we land on has an important, though hard word for us. Today, we'll look at Acts 5, and I'll just say right away at the onset, personally, this is perhaps one of the most challenging texts in scripture for me. Some of you might be uh, familiar with the story of this married couple whose names are Ananias and Sapphira. And we'll read together in just a moment, this couple's issued a particularly harsh punishment for what seems like a relatively minor misstep. However, my prayer for our church and our community today is that as we read this story, as we study this story together, as we lean into the discomfort of it, that God's spirit would challenge us where we are, that it would shape and encourage us in this particular moment in history. So that's my invitation. And to that end, let's pray together as we look at God's word. God, we are living in a world full of fear, full of uncertainty. And uh, I just admit that in my own story, in my own life, um, in the midst of the injustice that we know grieves your heart when fear has its way in me, Instead of leaning in, oftentimes my defenses go up, my heart becomes hard. I distance myself from the very world that you've called us to love. God, you invite me, you invite us to a different way, a gracious way, a hopeful way. So help us by your word to see that way with ever increasing clarity so that we might be indeed people of hope that you have called us to be in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible uh, with you, go ahead and turn to the beginning of Acts chapter five. Here's the story. I'm going to read it for us. Feel free to read out loud. It won't bother me. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter, who's one of the leaders of the church, said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Have you not, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, again, if you're relatively new to this life of faith or reading the Bible and you're sitting there asking yourself, what the heck is going on here? That is a perfectly valid response to the uh, text that we just read. It's funny, I'll often hear people um, who are sort of uh, disillusioned with the church, complaining about sort of all the problems that the church has. And to be fair, there are problems, but then they'll say something like this. They'll say, you know, I wish we could just go back to the early church, to, to the way it was then, you know, when things were real and simple. And my internal response is always, really? Like, have you read Acts 5? Are we, are we looking at the same Bible? Are you sure? And what's particularly troubling about this story is that up until this moment in the life of this little church, as we've been studying the past several re- weeks, the young faith uh, community, all the threats that were coming upon them, Uh, They've been external. They've been coming from the outside. In other words, prior to chapter five, it's been the Roman empire who are really the bad guys. Or in chapter four, it's the Jerusalem religious council who arrests Peter and John in an effort to squelch this Jesus movement that's happening. But we arrive here at our text for today at this story, and that's not the case. This is the first recorded moment when the church has had to do the uncomfortable work of actually looking inward. The bad guys aren't just out there. I can't just blame a political party. Can't just blame a political leader or an adversary. But rather in this call to embody an alternate way of being in the world, a way marked by beauty and justice, there's work actually to be done in-house. There's work to be done in God's church. There's work to be done in our church. There's work to be done in me. And so with hearts open to what that work might be, I want to break down three words that might guide us in this consideration this morning. Three words that are interrelated and they're just essential to this text that we've read today. The three words are this holiness, grace, and power. Holiness, grace, and power. Let's begin with that first word, holiness. If we look back at the book of Exodus, God instructs God's people, Israel, to build something called the Ark of the Covenant. Stay with me on this. This structure for a time is where the presence of God sort of resides as God leads Israel. This is all in the Old Testament. Now the covenant was holy. It was weighty with God's presence. That's what that word holy means. And there were all sorts of laws around who and what could come into contact with the ark. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where this well-intending guard actually puts a hand up to sturdy the ark as they're transporting it. And he's immediately killed. Similar to what we read today, it's a troubling story. Eventually, the ark comes to reside in the temple. And now the temple has become the place where God's presence lives. The temple is the Holy of Holies. It's much like, the Ar- uh, much like the Ark of the Covenant. There were laws about when and who could venture into it. And God's people took all this very seriously. Now, naturally, you're wondering, you know, what does this have to do with Ananias and Sapphira? Well, after the resurrection happened, there's this very important shift that takes place at Pentecost. 
God's spirit actually enters God's people. We talked about that a few weeks back. This is what Paul articulates in his letter to the Corinthians multiple times. He says, you are the temple of God. It's no longer the ark. It's no longer a building. It's actually in you, this community of people. And suddenly all those Old Testament laws that seemed arbitrary are less so because God knew all along what he was doing. God knew all along that his spirit would not stay housed in a building forever. And when it was unleashed into his people, he needed his people to understand the weightiness, the seriousness. Yes, even the danger of this holy call. See, if we look closely at the text, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is really a violation of holiness. They want outwardly to be part of this new and exciting and hopeful movement that is happening, but they also deceive that community for the sake of their own comfort. They try to live God's way and they try to live their own way. And effectively in this moment, God says, no, you can't have it both ways. The theologian Tom Wright sums this notion of temple holiness this way. He says, if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. During this past uh, month, further light has been shed on just how deep the evils of racism reach in our country. This has happened with the murders of Ahmaud Ombre, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And in an effort to understand sort of my own role in our broken system, I've been reading this book, a really great book I'd recommend called The Color of Compromise. The book explores sort of the complicity of the white American church in the perpetuation of racist systems. And in reading this book, I learned that the first slave owners on American soil were faced with the problem of conscience because they were Christian men. And it had been a longstanding custom in England uh, that Christians being spiritual brothers and sisters would not enslave one another. There's an agreement around that. Yet in America, in the new land, the economy of the uh, European colonies depended more and more on slave labor. So to fix this problem, plantation owners discouraged enslaved people from hearing the Christian gospel or from being baptized because they did not want to lose their unpaid labor. Think about that. So there were missionaries among them and these missionaries started putting pressure on slave owners to teach the gospel to enslaved people. There was a governing body at the time, a group called the uh, Virginia General Assembly. They were made up of Anglican Christians and they got together to decide how it was that they would fix this problem. They made a new law in September of 1667. And here is that law I'm quoting now. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. In other words, Christian called, Christians called to be the very temple, the very presence of God said, here, we'll just change around some words. We'll just do what we can so that we can have it both ways. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we'll just give half the money and then we'll hold on to half of it and call ourselves holy. And here's the God of the Old Testament and now the God of the New Testament saying to this little but mighty movement in the book of Acts, no, no. 
It's not okay. You will not make me into a God that I am not. You cannot have it both ways. You will not touch the ark. Now, if you're anything like me, there's this real temptation to sort of say, okay, I hear that, but can't we just let history be history? That was several hundred years ago. People made mistakes. The world has learned and move on. Can we talk about something else? And as a white Christian, that certainly is a convenient way for me to approach the text. But remember, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's about us. It's about me. It's not about those threats out there, those policies out there. Not in this moment. It's about my own heart. So I pause and I I reflect on my own story. I think about how just over a year ago, I helped to plan an event for our church and I was in charge of picking the three keynote speakers for that event. I think about um, how those three keynote speakers all had white skin like me. And this wasn't something I even thought about I, uh, until a person who attended the, the conference, a person of color graciously pulled me aside and after express, expressing just immense gratitude for the day, asked a simple question, which was essentially this, why did no one up there look like me? It was a question motivated by love, love for me, love for her church, love for this community, love for young kids with black and brown skin who often and tragically do not get to see people who look like them represented in positions of authority or expertise or creativity. And if I'm honest, my defenses came up a bit and it was hard for me to receive that question. I didn't want to believe that I, a well-meaning pastor, could be contributing to a problem, to a tragedy. In Galatians 6, when encouraging the church to do good to one another, uh, Paul, who is an early church leader, makes this crucial statement. He says, if anyone thinks they are something they are not, they deceive themselves. See, friends, God's invitation to God's church is that we would be the holy temple, that we would do good to one another, that we would be this living embodiment on earth as it is in heaven. But what Acts 5 names for us is that this holiness is a dangerous business. And the danger is that we deceive ourselves into believing we are there when in fact we are not. When in fact, we still want to have it both ways. Maybe this means like me, you know, despite your good intentions, you sort of benefit from not shaking up the status quo, not asking hard introspective questions, even if that status quo isn't reflecting the justice, peace, and mercy that define God's kingdom. And God makes that so clear in scripture. Or maybe for you, this looks like consumption without consideration of impact on people and our planet. Or maybe for you, as I know I have done, (laughs) I've spent a lot of time praying for peace, peace, but instead of allowing those prayers to move me into a world and engage with things that actually threaten peace, those prayers have become an excuse for my own apathy and silence. Become a way for me to stay distant. See, we can't sugarcoat the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but we can allow it to serve as an important guidepost, an important wake-up call for us as we seek to understand our own calling as a church. 
So this story makes clear for us the dangerous holiness of God. And in the same breath, it also highlights the necessity of this word, of this reality that is grace. Grace. It's really important that when we talk about holiness, we talk about grace because in God's kingdom, in God's economy, those two things, they, they always coexist. Let's return again to our text this morning from Acts. If we back up to the passage immediately preceding the story we read in Acts 5, there's a, a description of the faith community. And this comes just before the story of Ananias and Sapphira's death. So this is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 42. 34, it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money uh, from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, I want to focus our attention for a moment on that phrase that we see in the second part of verse 33, which says this, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. See, in order to understand this call to be holy, we have to understand the nature of that word grace. We can't be holy without it. In a sermon uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once gave on the nature of grace, he reminded the church very prophetically that grace is not mechanical. In other words, it's not just a one-time thing where I exchange my bad for God's good so that I can get to heaven, not exclusively. Instead, Dr. King painted this robust picture of grace as the favor and the merit of God that is like a river, is like this ever-flowing gift into the core of my very being. See, when we live as recipients of this stream, when we allow that into our life, we are able to detach from postures of greed or postures of self-righteousness or judgment or defensiveness or privilege because now money and image and status are no longer needed to give meaning to our story. Instead, there's this deep, ongoing, inflowing affirmation from God. Can't explain it. We don't deserve it. We call this grace. Verse 33 highlights Dr. King's point that grace is not mechanical. It's not stagnant. Luke writes, grace was at work in them. It's up to something. It's doing something. It's changing people. It's changing the world. See, it's, it's easy to reflect on Acts 5 and think, wow, what happened to God's grace? Like, this seems like that God I read about in the Old Testament that I kind of left behind with Jesus. God just expects us to be holy and perfect or else we're struck down. But if we read carefully, we see there's no expectation that we be perfect. Rather, there's an expectation, a hope that God's people in their imperfection would continue to be made, made full of grace would continue to let God's grace be alive and at work. You'll notice in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they're actually given the chance to come clean when Peter confronts them about their lie. They're given the chance to be filled with something other than deceit. And so what they miss is this little doorway, this little opportunity, not to toxic shame, but to great grace, to God's story. They choose instead to double down, to to cling to mystery, to cling to their own self-righteousness. And they miss a huge opportunity for transformation. That's the work of grace. 
I was talking to my good friend a few weeks back, and uh, we'll call her Elise because that's her name. And we were talking about this word sin. And Elise is the daughter of a pastor. So she's sort of grown up with a front row seat to um, the church, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And she reflected aloud to me on how interesting it is that Christians seem very comfortable acknowledging, I am a sinner. And perhaps even more comfortable saying, you are a sinner. But she said, what seems to make everyone terribly uncomfortable is getting particular around sin around where we've fallen short of God's best for us in our own story. In other words, I'm okay acknowledging in general terms that the way I spend my money might not reflect God's generosity and heart for the poor, but let's not look at my bank account specifically. Or I'm okay saying, sure, racism is a thing that exists out there in the world, maybe kind of in systems even, but don't ask me to reflect on my own biases. Don't ask me to look at my own heart or thoughts. See, so often when we get particular around sin, like Ananias and Sapphira, our defenses go up. We deceive, we deflect, we protect, we bolster up a particular image of the self. And here was Elisa's reflection. She said, I don't get it because in all of this posturing and pretending, we're missing the very opportunity to grow and become the hands and feet of Jesus. Like, why do we do this? Why do we get so defensive and miss the thing that makes the Christian life so meaningful, so hopeful? The seminary word for this is sanctification, and it's so important. She's talking there about God's grace filling us up alive in us. See, the the holiness of God essentially demands you can't have it both ways. You can't live in two worlds. And the grace of God essentially says, here, you don't have to come stand in my world. Don't mishear me. This doesn't get us off the hook of transformation. It's actually the foundation on which transformation begins to happen in our hearts. Holiness doesn't come by avoiding brokenness. It comes by entering brokenness comes by allowing God's grace to be sufficient for us in the areas of our life that need it the most. My toddler age son is currently obsessed with this book called The Bad Seed. And there's this recurring line in the book where this little seed says, I'm a bad seed. And recently my son Mark, he's been going around saying that line over and over to to me and to his dad and to complete strangers and Um, it's really quite funny. So finally I asked him, I said, Mark, what makes you a bad seed? Like, why do you keep saying this? And his eyes got big and he got defensive and he said, nothing, nothing, nothing. (laughs) See, when Ananias and Sapphira are confronted by Peter, they had a chance to speak truth, a chance to be filled with something other than deceit. And instead they effectively say, nothing, nothing. Church, we live in a world with so much injustice and God longs for that to change. And it doesn't begin with changing what's out there. It begins changing what's here. It begins doing the courageous work of not deceiving ourselves. Again, it's not about toxic shame. It's not about beating ourselves down with guilt. It's about the goodness of God that Chris talked about in that kid's moment. It's about opening ourselves up to the generosity of God in weakness. I'd like to invite you to do something really practical this week when you have moments where you sort of find yourself confronted with your own brokenness or maybe you're feeling defensive towards another person. Pay attention to that. 
Instead of being afraid of it, consider it a doorway into a journey of sanctification, the doorway that Ananias and Sapphira missed. Maybe it's with regard what's, to what's happening around racial injustice, and you want to take some time to do the courageous kind of moral inventory of your own heart. Maybe it's a sense of the Holy Spirit offering conviction about a particular behavior or a pattern of behavior. If you're able, I'd encourage you to set some time aside and just pray a very simple prayer that you'll find printed in the online bulletin. Prayer simply says this, God, is there an area of my life where your great grace longs to fill me? Please remove my deceit and make way for your grace. Then I'd encourage you to take some space and quiet to actually listen. There's so much, so much noise in our world right now. What would it look like to listen? Don't be overwhelmed. Don't retreat into defensiveness. If you're uncomfortable, stay with it. Trust that in your discomfort, you are actually on the road to holiness. And then I'll close today with observing a third word that is central to understanding Acts 5. That word is power. In our world, that word tends to be associated with strong arming, with speaking louder, with asserting force. And sort of the big C church power can often take the form of paternalism or a savior complex. But I want us to note in Acts 4, the mark of power in this little community is revealed in something altogether, altogether different. It's revealed in their relationships in the way they show up so filled with God's grace that they dispossess what they have for the sake of the other. Verse 32 says, no one claimed possessions for their own. They shared all they had. And verse 34 reiterates this point saying, there was no needy person among them. And you'll notice if you read closely that nestled between those two verses is this great proclamation with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, by sandwiching these words about the resurrection between two descriptions of this unique community, Luke makes it clear that the proof, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection is witnessed through the unprecedented relationships taking place within this group in which no one has need, in which everyone is cared for. Now, if you're like me, we tend to read this and we automatically make it about the stuff, about the money. If you're a person of relative wealth, we tend to ask, am I giving enough? Am I being generous enough? Enough is generally defined as avoiding the fate of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. But the revolutionary resurrection power in this passage is not first about giving. First, it's about people being so filled with grace that they're actually existing together in an altogether new way. Historically speaking, this community is the, the very first of its kind. Poor and rich are together. Male and female are together. Schooled and unschooled are together. And for the first time, they're together in a way that affirms the God spark in every person, but elevates no one to God-like over another person. This is the source of their power. This past Friday, many folks honored and celebrated Juneteenth, which is remembered um, as the day when the last enslaved people in North America were finally freed on June 19th, 1865. On this day, word of the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been issued two and a half years prior by President Lincoln, finally reached Galveston, Texas. Now, to be clear, the great sin is that slavery ever occurred, period, end of story. 
But the additional evil is that for two and a half years, enslaved people in Southern Texas were forced to live as though they were property, even though legally they were free. Now there's some question as to why the news of abolition took so long to reach Texas, but most historians agree that it's likely um, the information was deliberately withheld by the enslavers so they could maintain their labor force, which was needed to fight the civil war. This week, as I was learning more about Juneteenth, I couldn't help but compare these two pictures of power that we see playing out. On the one hand, you have this little band of Jesus followers displaying relationship, equality, sacrifice, true humility, all of this evident in human flourishing that's happening across the boards. That's resurrection. (laughs) That compared with a picture of people unjustly terrorized, held as property because of skin color, even once the evil had ended, not afforded rights that should have been theirs for a lifetime. See that second example of one group or person manipulating, lording over another, that's not true power. We might think of that as power in our world, but it's not true power. It doesn't win, that's deception. That's fear. It's the very antithesis of the relationship we see in Acts 4 and scripture makes it clear it's a house of cards. Power is people selling property and giving away that profit because nothing matters more than the dignity of another. Power is when a person born into privilege says, maybe my perspective, my understanding of history is limited and I want to learn to lean in and learn and keep learning and keep loving. Power is a king named Jesus pausing to listen to the story of a woman at the very bottom of the social hierarchy, a woman no one else would hear, and he stopped. That's power. Power is a God on a cross who defeated evil in our world to the very last fiber by entering into relationship with that world. Flesh and blood, giving everything he had to it. That's power. And so for us, the questions are simple, but not easy, which is so often the case. How is God's grace at work in you? Where is God's grace ushering you in this moment in history, this critical moment in history? Where is God's grace ushering you into deeper holiness? How is holiness manifesting as God's great power in your life? Where are you moving into deeper relationship? At the end of Acts 5, following the death of Ananias and Sapphira, Luke writes that a great fear seized the whole church. And what's significant about that verse is that it's the first time the word church or ecclesia in the Greek is used to describe this little kingdom movement. The first time we see it. And I love that the formal title comes after this really interesting and messy encounter as if this was God's way of reminding us, his community, his beloved community, here is what you're called to do. No romanticizing it, no deceiving ourselves. Just this broken band of people filled with grace moved to real power. It's a dangerously holy calling, but friends, there is no calling more important or full of life. And it's ours this church in this moment right here. Let's live into that. Let's pray for the grace to live into that.
Holy Spirit, we are grateful to be children of God. We're grateful that we stand always, always, and forever in grace. God, may that grace not land in our life. May that grace not land in my life in a way that leads me to apathy. God, but may it lead me deeper into myself, deeper in to reflection, deeper in to the recesses of my heart, places I do not want to go. But I can because you promised to be there. God, we long to be changed. We long to be people who look like you. And we are so aware. If we watch the news at night, we are so aware we cannot get there on our own. Meet us with your grace. May we walk through that doorway today so that we can be changed into people of hope. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.